Today, we're talking to Adam, founder of Apex Ridge Reliability, all about why the concept of time to market is a lie. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Man, this is exciting. This is time number three. You're entering like a top 1% of guest area. (laughs) Where you've you've been on several times. So I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, I love it. I was so excited that you invited me back on. Yeah, that's funny. It feels like the SNL where they're like, how many times have you hosted SNL or your five-timer club, (laughs) six-timer club? I'm the three-timer club. There you go. That's awesome. That's it's rare, but it's amazing. And and honestly, I've enjoyed getting to to know you. And so I'm glad our paths crossed. What is new since the last time that we saw each other? Yeah, uh, exciting stuff. Um, So I'm continuing on my journey of, you know, from hardcore reliability engineering, best practices in product development, electromechanical product development, to helping leadership of technology companies do better at creating organizations and programs that just by default create highly reliable products. So as when we talked last time, and, you know, so two years ago, Uh, My book, Reliability Culture, had just come out, which was written for executives to build organizations that make reliable products. Well, apparently I can't stop writing because my third book is going to be coming out uh, sometime this year. It's in editing. And uh, I believe the title is going to be Time to Reliability. Seems like what we settled on uh, because it's kind of a core principle. But first, I'll tell you the funny, it's it's cliche, but... um, you know, I'm always creating content. I'm always just enjoy creating content and, you know, talking to people and ideas. And in my work, I document like, oh, there's this good idea and, you know, idea from people with people collaborating. And um, I was like, you know, I think this is becoming another book. And I'm, there's also some big lessons learned I've had from the last one, right? That's kind of it. It's this journey. And with the last book, I'm like, it didn't quite hit the way I thought. And it took a while for me to realize, I'm like, why, why is it, when I'm talking with people and I'm talking with executives, they're always like, I love it. I love this stuff. And, but I kind of, I think had this fantasy when the book came out, there'd be this surge of like these methods being implemented, you know, and there was an increase in it and I saw language change, but it wasn't like this, like I imagined and I wasn't being grandiose, you know, it just, I was like, oh, it's kind of strange. And, and then it clicked, it it really clicked. And it was that, I was writing to the people who want it to happen, but not the ones who do it, right? A CEO, you know, or even a lot of CTOs and organizations or COOs, they want the product development program to, by default, make highly reliable products. But they're not going to do it. That's not, you know, they're worrying about the quarter. They're worrying about profits. They're worrying about other stuff. And they really want to, they really don't want to be a part of that process directly, as much as I was kind of picturing they might. And what I realized is, oh, the real value of this content is the level beneath them, the people that they're asking to do it. And sometimes I don't like to use titles too much because in different organizations, the titles and what they do can be very different. And I was like, oh, this is really the people at the top of the business organization and top of the technical organization still connected to engineering working better together. And I was like, a lot of this content is the catalyst to them working better. And I realized that that's kind of where I was going after this last one. And um, yeah, so that's, it became, you know, I was like, all right, I feel like this is a book. And I started writing it in January, like starting to really make it a book. And I found myself kind of being like hesitant, avoiding it a little bit, sitting and kind of writing slowly and getting off track. And I was like, what is going on? You know, it just, it didn't feel right. And um, 
if you know me, you know, I like doing a lot of motorcycles and car trips. And I did the, um, I did a couple big trips. And one of the big ones I did was from the Pacific Coast Highway from Seattle down to LA, 1700 miles, camping at night on the ocean bluffs, like just the redwood forest. It was amazing. And those eight hours a day in the helmet alone is just this weird epiphany at the end of it. And I came back and I threw out the other book entirely and I dropped out another 26,000 words in four weeks. And it just felt so good. And I'm very excited about this. And and it, it feels like, you know, just no learnings from the last one. This is gonna, I feel like this is really gonna help a lot of people that are a couple different levels at the top of this technical organization. You know, directors, VP, senior VP, CTOs, I even have some a COO who's very excited about it. But again, organization size and structure changes that. And then on the business and program side, and then finally connecting in that way where you're just making the best decisions through the whole program. And, and that's really the end result is that this stuff is working when you are just making the right decisions through the whole program from the beginning. I agree. I'm curious. I want to talk a little bit more about the epiphany or the clarity. So you said you're in a helmet, you're going up and down the coast. Can you explain more about what you're doing there? Yeah, with the the tripper. Yeah. Like how well, so the, the trip is just fun. I love I love doing these um I don't know, work hard, play hard a little bit. So I do these different random I've lately been doing a lot with motorcycle trips. So like I had a, uh, an important business, you know, meeting in eastern Montana. So, you know, and I knew the people pretty well and it was kind of a mix to get together some different people, even from you know different companies, some executives and some other stuff we were working on. And, uh, you know, they were like, you need to be in Columbia Falls, Montana on this day. And I was like, there's like, there's a small airport in the same town. You can fly in there. And I was like, no, I was like, I'm going to fly into Spokane, Washington and drive all the way across 700 miles across there, Idaho and Montana and I'm like, I'm not going to stay downtown in the hotel with you guys. I'm going to rent a, uh, somebody had a trailer like out in the middle of a field. And that's where I'm going to stay so I can look at the big sky at night, you know, Montana. So I did this awesome motorcycle ride, you know, just across all that beautiful landscape and everything. And so I've been enjoying that. And the, the trip, this kind of trip of a lifetime to do the Pacific Coast Highway, which is one of the most beautiful roads in America came about because uh, a close friend of mine who also rides, he, uh, when his father was passing away, he asked his dad, he's like, you know, dad, I'm not asking anybody life regrets or anything, but is there anything you wish you had done that you didn't get to do? And his dad, who also rides, was like, I always want to do the Pacific Coast Highway. And, you know, and I kept putting it off and it never happened. So my, my buddy, uh, Dan, was like, he was in mind, he's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do it for me. You know, seize the day. And uh, he told me this story and I'm like, I'm in, I'll go. You know, and he's like, oh, I'd love that. So we, you know, we both have kids and families and all that. And it's, you know, it's, it's a lot of time off to do it. And uh, we planned it. The pandemic hit, postponed it a year. Pandemic continued, postponed it another year. So we kept putting it on the calendar and we put it on the calendar for September this year and it, it happened. So uh, it was really nice. cool. What is your family doing? Are they just back at home or do they go with you? No, I was on a motorcycle. It was just me on a on a GS 1200 motorcycle and him and him on his bike. Oh, nice. So just Yeah, yeah, this, this is a motorcycle a trip. This is a easy rider, right? This is two guys with their sleeping bags tied on the back of the bikes, all your gear for the week, your tent, your tarps, and your loofah sponge to dry it out is the best way to not have it in the bag. And um we're sleeping on the cliffs. So we were like doing 
we only stayed in a hotel one night, but we did that to dry out our gear. So, you know, we are, have all our gear on our bike and we're riding all day and it gets dark and we're like, you know, we're tired and we're right near, you know, the ocean, you know, going right past it. And it was always on our side. And so you could find a campground, but sometimes I was like, let's just turn right and go through this field till we come to the edge of the cliff. And we'd pitch our tent on the edge of the cliff over the water. And, you know, just that kind of a romantic, just amazing, you know, great experience. And, you know, and then that was like after a day of riding through the Redwood Forest, you know, or whatever. So it's it was really fun. That is pretty cool. When did nerds become cool? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Am I a trailblazer? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just look around and like all of these people that I know in technology, they they have really interesting backgrounds. They have yeah. fun hobbies. And, yeah. you know, I guess I caught the tail end of growing up and it kind of being odd. I think the generation after me, it was... Yeah. a lot more acceptable yeah 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 That's i guess cool. uh i don't know i don't know how to answer that i think everybody just you just are all the different dynamic aspects of your art don't put yourself in a box we were always cool it just took everyone else a little bit to catch up and figure it exactly. out let's go with that let's go with exactly that. <laughs> yeah that's it so you go on this trip, you have this epiphany, you come mm-hmm. back have you gone on trips before and it provided you clarity around a project that you were working on you know, actually, it's funny. I, I've really, especially since that trip, noted how important that is to get out of work mode. Um, that it, it, it was an eye opener. It was really an eye opener because I'd been driving really hard this past year because I'm also building a new um, CTO community, actually called T3, and creating that and some other fronts and you know big work projects and a lot of things. And you know, I didn't realized that I actually had gotten in, even with the trips I was doing, you know, because I'd mixed in three really good motorcycle trips uh, over the past 12 months before that. But again, they were work associated a little bit, some of them. And I didn't realize how much I was never turning off my mind from work, you know, even when I'm not doing it, right? I know that you know that. So I've kind of, in a moment of growth, realized I need to really mix in those times where it's really turned off. And then the irony being, that's where I <laughs> delivered the best content is <laughs> when I turn it off, right? In some ways, because I guess, I guess in truth, you, I can't totally turn it off. But if I turn off the burden of it or the, this kind of slave driver I have, right? My boss is a jerk who just kind yeah. of keeps me going all the Mine time. Too. Right? Mine too. Mine too is hard on me. Yeah. <laughs> Hate that guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just, it, it's, it's interesting. So I, I'm sure you've realized that too, especially, I mean, you have a, you know, you have a new baby or, you know, things are moving fast and yeah, it's, uh, it can be intense. And it's kind of like, if you're a, a runner, there's a huge difference between, you know, you can run a marathon, but you can't run three in a row. You should take a day off or whatever, you know, you got to take that break. It makes a big difference. So I'm realizing that that actually, if I have to sell to myself is better performance, then that's fine. That's how I sell to myself, but it's needed. When you don't have a high work ethic, you imagine that being able to focus and clamp onto something and just beat it to death is is the skill because you don't have a high work ethic at some point in your life, right? When you're trying to become better and learning about how to do that and improve yourself. Then your next stage is you're clamped, right? You're just beating it to death. And then you have to mature out of that to realize that you can't just beat it to death all the time. And so yeah. it's this difficult maturity process that you have to go through. Yeah. Yeah, it it is yeah. interesting the the growth side of it too, and it's funny too. I was even just talking with a friend of mine today, uh, 
I have the, it's just, you know, as a consultant, you know, it's a little bit of a lonely world or I think for executives too. And you, it's great to have peers that you can confide and trust in, which is actually one of the reasons why I'm creating T3 for CTOs is that it's going to be a confidential place with NDA signed for both personal and professional sharing of information. Uh, the groups are no bigger than six and they are able to use that space. They're, they're all going to be on this type that are on the same journey where the content that I'm creating in my facilitation is aligned with their goals, but it allows that space of camaraderie and people helping people. But that comes from how much I benefited from that. Um, and the example I was going to give is I have, you know, a friend that we talk every week just to share. We're both consultants. He's, you know, he's unbelievable. He's Oh, he's, he's at the age where people usually retire and rest and he's like expanding his consulting business, unbelievable. And he's been an executive and all these different things, very inspirational. Hi, Henry, if you're listening. You know, it just, we really open up about things and I was really telling him how it's kind of interesting that as you grow and do new, th- new things, how much the fear can, can inhibit you and you don't realize it. And it's funny, no matter how much you've accomplished or can look back on and say, oh, that's great what I've done or I like my resume and there's still that weird first day of kindergarten fear when you take a bit, another big step forward and uh, it's all in your head, you know? And so that's why it's great to be able to, to have peers to talk about it. Absolutely. And for me, I have to remind myself that when I do get comfortable, I need to associate that with fear <laughs> so that I get to that next stage. Because yeah. I've noticed sometimes that I'll get comfortable and hang out in a spot for a couple months. And luckily I have this recurring event in my calendar from this mentor a few years ago who invested in me. He said, every three months, put in your calendar a recurring event that asks, you know, several questions that he gave me. And that really helps me, you know, step, step out of uh, myself so I can get a different perspective. Yeah. That's so great. Isn't that mentor thing yeah. great? Cause I, there's people I mentor just out of caring and giving and people who mentor yes. to me just out of caring and giving and it's such a wonderful cycle, you know, and uh, it's really good. For this T3, first of all, super cool name. Have you talked to Etienne de Bruin at all about this? Who? Do you know him? Etienne de Bruin? No, I don't. You got to meet, you got to meet this guy. Okay. Oh, he's Marshall. taught me so much about how you do it. Like, cause you, it's really clear how you will do it with one or two or three groups. But then when you try to get five, six, 10 groups, it's, you have all the scaling problems that you normally have. But yeah, yeah. I'd be more than happy to write that email and make an introduction. Oh, I was just goodness. talking to him today. <laughs> I greatly appreciate that. And, and, uh, your confidence that I'm going to do one or two, three groups. Well, I don't, I don't know to see how uh. that goes. That, I'm going to have most of my questions about that. I'm not going into it thinking, oh, no. Yeah. There's a lot to figure out there for me too. So I always go to infinity. I always scale it up and out as far as yeah. I can. Let's give the call to action there. If people want to learn more about T3, where do they go? Um, so you contact me directly. So it's it's my okay. email address, A-B-A-H-R-E-T at apexridge.com. So, you know, abarrett at apexridge.com. And um, with the process right now is I'll share with you a summary of high level information about it. If it's of interest to you, you know, I want to talk further with you. We're going to see if it's a good match. You know, do I feel like you're a good match for the group? Do you feel like it's what you're doing? And then you'll get uh, an, you know, an official invitation uh, before March 1st. Nice. That is really cool. And so what does T3 stand for? T3. So um, you're going to see a, con- a continuing theme here. I wanted to, this actually came from, uh, this happened with a really good friend of mine, another person who I greatly admire, uh, you know, uh, amazing um, uh, consultant Rich Litvin, 
we were uh, drinking and smoking cigars in Little Havana in Miami. Not that long, not that long ago, because we were down in Miami doing some some work. And um, you know, I was telling him about you know how I want this community, and I told him the name I had for it, whatever. And he's like, you know, Adam, there's no story. Like, where's the where's the story? You know, like where's where's the thing that got you you know excited about this? And I was, he's like, just tell me a story about something you think emotionally that relates. And I was like, you know, I think one of the most amazing sports right now on the planet is the Isle of Man TT. And it's a motorcycle race that's been going for 104 years and they do 200 plus miles an hour on the city streets and country roads for a 34 mile course. And it's the last true gladiator sport. It's unbelievable. What they, it's the boldest sport on the planet to, to be able to do that you're in another stratosphere that, you know, you're to me in the same category as astronauts. So it's, it's the boldest sport. It's people that are dedicated to accomplishing something and put everything in, nothing's left behind. Everything's there, you know, on the line. And that's the mindset and the people I'm looking for, for this. I want that kind of boldness. I, I don't want to be working with, you know, let's get you past if you, if you think you want to do this, if you think you can get you know, is it safe politically to push things a little bit? Is it, you know, I, I, I want people that are past that and are ready to commit to evolving their organization to where they just design products that are highly reliable by default, period. You know, I don't, you, you need to be bold. You need to, to push your other peer executives. You need to push your groups. And, you know, you're not doing it in a careless way, um, but you are going to, you know, you, you can't be timid about it. So that's, so then... I'm calling it the, so it's the CTO's Taurus Trophy, the three T's. And I actually changed the name to Technical Officer's Taurus Trophy because I don't want to limit the CTOs. COOs are welcome, senior VPs, even CEOs, because that title um, doesn't always, isn't always the exact same responsibilities and accountability in the organization in different organizations. Because I've talked with people who are COOs who are like, that's like what I need to do. That's what I need to accomplish. You know, I talk with other people, other organizations where that, you know, it's the senior VP and they're like, that is on my desk. I need to do it. You know, my CTO assigned it to me. So since the title shift, you know, it's, I changed the name to technical officers instead of just CTO and, you know, saying that anybody's welcome who wants to accomplish that. I agree with you on the title shifting. That is one of the most difficult things that I've tried to figure out how to solve as a speaker because everyone's listening and I'm going around and I'm interviewing great leaders, you, know, you learning about you and product reliability or leadership or whoever it may be, whatever their specialty is. And the information is always so specific in to provide the context to make it useful for everybody. It's almost one of those things where I know, like when I started out, it was really easy because I had this view in my head of how everything was from you know my position and my experience. After I talked to a couple hundred people, I realized this thing is crazy. It's across the board. It's everywhere. And so I, I know exactly what you mean as far as it's really hard to say, hey, we're welcoming all CTOs because it could be if you're at you know, $50 million, you might be the COO with these responsibilities. If you're at $5 million, you might be the CEO with these responsibilities. And so it's really something I guess that we would need to build around the responsibility. But the thing is, the re- building it around the responsibility is, is a, it's a harder marketing challenge because everybody identifies better with the, with the titles, right? That's why yeah. the interview process. That's why I'm not just, hey, first six people are, are it. I'm like, nope, here's a high-level summary. How does this fit with you? All right, let's talk about it. Or is, you know, Because this doesn't work if those six people don't jive with each other 
you know, in the sense of who they are, what they're trying to to do, and all, all the other peripheral aspects of that. So that's, I want to be very careful about that. And that's also why I want to limit it to six. And that's funny, he picked the number seven, that that's funny, we're thinking yeah. the same thing. And I picked that number very specifically from my experience with all my engineering stuff, where when I'm working with teams to do like risk assessment, which means to hypothetically break down how failure modes can occur and what can happen, what can cause them. And there's a lot of creativity in there too and trying to discover and figure things out. And I found some magic numbers for the group sizes with that. You know, I found that less than four, eh, it kind of, it becomes singular. More than 12, it's just, it's just a toast. It becomes like one or two people over talking to everybody else. Other people aren't listening. Then they jump in and it goes a different direction. And that kind of like four, four is my minimum, 12 is my maximum, six is awesome. So that's, that I chose that number very specifically based on my experiences with groups that are flushing out things and working towards a goal. And so right now you're taking more of like an artisan approach, this very specific thing with you and, and these six people. And that's just, you're building your first group right now. It, exactly. I'm trying to formalize something that's been happening informally in the sense that, you know, I've been working with executives on, on this, right? This is part of what I do. And so often I'm like, oh, if these two people could talk, they really could help each other. I mean, maybe it's a weird analogy or not, but it's like what Alcoholics Anonymous proved of people figuring stuff out, helping each other, right? Because before <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous is a horrible example, other than it's such an amazingly successful thing for one specific problem that nobody else could create progress with. I mean, there's no doubt that when people who are struggling with something similar work together in a constructed format with a facilitator, the results are amazing because you can't have a facilitator who's, you know, not in that exact same position at the time provide that same kind of interesting insight and shared experience from the front line at the same time. That's an important element to really to growth. And that's why, you know, that is like, you know, that is an unbelievable big challenge if you have, you know, something like that, like alcoholism or addiction or whatever, like what an unbelievable challenge to try to overcome that. And it's never over, right? It's just a very uh, continuous and you should be very diligent and aggressive. And that is the one thing that stuck, right? Through all these decades. So it's, um, there's something very powerful about, about a group working together. I'm glad you explained that because I saw in my meeting prep notes from Josh, a line in there, a bullet point in there that says, it's, his new group is like AA. <laughs> We're technology Josh. leaders. Right, and, I, and I go, I go, how is Adam gonna do this? I was like, how is he gonna explain that? <laughs> but I get you did you did a great job though. I get Josh, it. Josh, Josh. We're gonna talk later. Um no, um, no, 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 I'm glad you did it because that's that was the thing. Cause it's funny, it's um it's really the best example I can think of of that extremely powerful dynamic, right? Which gets used in many other places, but I guess it's the one everybody knows. Well, it's smart. You're taking some a, a format everybody's familiar with through their either own life experiences of, of having attended or the in the movies, you can't not understand. If you consume yep. media to some degree, you can't not understand the format and what AA is, right? It's in that, so yeah, I many guess that's movies. That. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, so because it's, good, I, it's, it's an easy connection. Yeah. yeah. And the reason why I'm inspired to use it is I've never had an addiction or used it, but that exact same method I found so valuable in some of the other groups I have done, right? So for whatever, whatever other collaborative groups that if they allow, if they allow the bandwidth to also go to people helping each other, it's always this big, like big step up, this big level step up in, in results. 
because that continues after too. And it doesn't just continue, that doesn't stop when the meeting closes. So I'm also going to be creating an online, you know, for those groups, they're going to have the ability to continue the discussions online between our sessions as well. Well, when you have bold people doing bold things and they're all together and sharing, they're building bonds. I mean, that's how relationships are built is when you go through life together. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love it. And I love that every time I talk to you, you're always creating something new. Whether it's a book or a piece of content, your email newsletters are hilarious. I opened one a couple weeks ago and it was, I was drunk doing math and I'm like, <laughs> oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> uh, uh, it was funny uh, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that uh, is an article and, and I did in my podcast too. That's the title of it is how I almost got punched in the face at work. Yes, that's what it was. <laughs> that was yeah. yeah, that was that was it. And then the end, the punchline at the end was the individual who I had frustrated greatly at work. We ended up out in the field and actually was in uh, in Italy, Milan, trying to solve this problem together. And we did, and we're very excited about it and ended up going to a very high-end fancy restaurant to kind of celebrate the night before we were going to go back. Unfortunately, when I drink, I become even more dorky. <laughs> like when my filters go down, I'll tell you more math stuff. Like it's <laughs> like it's so fun. Come to my party. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. This guy's stay home. <laughs> I don't stay home, dude. But no, no. But but then here, let me describe to you how I ended up how how it manifested, and you'll reinvite me to your party. So I was talking to them. I'm like, I was like, you know, Monte Carl Monte Carlo statistical simulations are amazing because you can calculate things with random number generation, whatever. And he's like, oh my god. So I'm like, no, 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 I can show you. I was like, look, I can calculate pi, you know, 3.14 by throwing breadcrumbs in the air, setting up a plate to napkin and three menus. And I can actually calculate pi by just turning that. And he's like, all right, I got to see this. So we're in a fancy restaurant, two Americans who drink a bunch, and I'm throwing breadcrumbs in the air, you know, with a kind of a <laughs> bunch of menus and after whatever. And um, of course, I can't remember. I'm trying to keep count of which landed where in the plate versus the napkin, because that's the ratio for the number generator. And uh, I can't remember. He's laughing at me and I'm laughing at myself. And um, yeah, so I guess that is good article content. So, Well, I loved it. And I, I laughed as I was scrolling through it and I definitely read through it. One of the things that I like about you is you are highly intelligent, but you're also self-aware, which means to your point of that story, you immediately notice when the eyes glazed over. There is a large number of highly intelligent people that don't have that ability and they will just keep going. But the fact yeah. that you have it is is one of the reasons why I believe that you're so successful. Oh, thank you. I greatly, I greatly, greatly appreciate that. And I attribute that to the fact that I have just as hard a time learning this stuff as other people. I think when people are so brilliant that it's effortless to learn it, they can't imagine other people not getting it. I think that probably I've struggled just as much as the average bear to, to learn these things. Um, I think maybe why I appear different is my passion for it is so big. I just won't give up. But I, I'm sharing with you probably the process I had to go through in my mind to try to understand it, you know, too. So um, kind of to some degree, maybe there is a disability that I've leveraged to be a, an advantage in that I can, I can communicate things well because I had a hard time learning or I was slow to learn it myself or whatever, you know. Well, I firmly believe that for myself, it's not my it's not like a high level of intelligence that causes me to be successful. It's that I'm just relentless. Yeah. The best way to explain it is when I was young, I had an older brother, and I specifically remember this one day where I was probably like eight years old, 
and my brother had his friend over and they were, you know, roughhousing with me, right? Not like beating me up like bloody fists and knuckles, but you know, like pushing me down and, and things like that and, and messing with me. And the friend that he had over, they pushed me down, I was on the ground, I got back up and they did that several times. And finally he just started laughing. He was like telling me not to get back up and I kept getting back up and he was just laughing. And then finally he's just like, you are awesome. <laughs> and he ended up like loving me and like, <laughs> yeah, he, it's so funny because if you, it's such a great connection to life because if you you're getting beat up and in those moments when you're getting beat up it's just like give up man just yeah. give up but those people who don't those people ultimately it's almost like you get respect from the universe or respect from god yeah. and they and then you yeah. get a you get a little you know mystery thing where that that'll help you a little plus one you know and then you just slowly start to build those up and you keep going and then life turns out a lot better than it was when you were uh, getting beat up a lot yeah. Tenacity is, is without a doubt, I agree with you, the most essential element of success. It's, there's so many people that I've come across that are unbelievably talented. And I'm like, oh my God, if I only could be a quarter as smart as they are and whatever, but I've accomplished and gone farther because of just the tenacity. You know, if they, if they had the same tenacity, you know, they, they would have gone as far. And so it really is tenacity, you know, and uh, I think it is the, the key element. I don't think you'll find a single person successful who doesn't have the tenacity. Like there's never just a talented person who's chill about it. I think it's more common to find the talented person who just doesn't have a work ethic than it yeah. is <laughs> yeah. to find yeah. other things. Yeah, because so many times I've heard people, you know, maybe just just out in, a, out in life. One is a yeah. really great one singers, people who are really good singers. Yeah. And then they'll, I mean, look, American Idol made a whole show about it. They'll be working at Subway and they're a world-class singer. It's right. like, if you just go out and apply yourself, yeah. you could be, you know, Beyonce-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Kind yeah. of be Beyonce. Yes. You'll know? <laughs> at least <laughs> find out how far like, you can go. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Change of topic. What's your podcast about? I want to tell people about your podcast. Oh yeah. So my podcast is uh, Reliability Leader. The focus for reliability leaders, because it's about how leaders can, you know, like my reliability culture book and this content, how leaders and uh, people who create product development programs can do things differently to fundamentally make better products. But of course, I don't just constrain to that. I'll go wherever the conversation goes or wherever my guest wants to go. Find always find lots of fun guests, people who want to, you know, go over different things. Um, oh, I should track down the guy who did want to punch me in the face from like 15 years ago. Go. That would be great guests to have. Did yeah. you find them? Like, That's a great idea. Because that was a popular article. I did get a lot of comments on it. And then and then I did the follow-up one about, I actually drew out the equations and how to do it. Um, but um, yeah, it's Reliability Leader. It's in, I uh, just finished my fourth season of it. So it's uh, it's moving along. I enjoy doing it. And, you know, my article series there, you can go to apexridge.com and at the bottom, you know, there's a sign-up sheet for the article series. And uh, I know people enjoy it. And of course, I post them on LinkedIn as well. Have you gotten to meet any of your favorite authors on the topic by having them on the show? Authors on reliability, reliability, leadership. yeah, yeah. There's people I've, I would say that I've known them and then invited them. I don't, I haven't invited. I generally invite people I know. I guess would be the, the you way to put it. People you don't know. I haven't invited people I don't know, which I should do. So people want to go look it up in the podcast store or wherever they listen to podcast. Yeah. What is the title of it? Reliability Leader with Adam Barrett. Do you do video podcasts too or just audio? 
Yeah, I don't do video podcasts. I've never taken my podcast and done video, but I generally, as far as video, it's when I do webinars or seminars, you know, speak places, I tend to record them and have them up on my site as well. And that's just Apex. What's the website again? It's apexridge.com. Yes, yes. We want to bring value to the audience and you're a subject matter experts on making products more reliable. Uh, if you have to focus on just one thing, if somebody were to walk away from this conversation with just one thing to think about other than buying yeah. your book, what would that be as far as making products more reliable? Yep. It would be time to reliability, which is a, a term that I uh, created because I felt everybody was just flat out lying to themselves and getting themselves in trouble. And what they were lying to themselves about was time to market. So one of the you know biggest driving factors in any product development program is time to market. You know, we've, this thing has to be out in November 2024, and that is very much not negotiable or there better be an unbelievable reason. And a lot of decisions get driven by that. And so in product development, sometimes things come up and, you know, it does, you do need to negotiate time. We found this issue that's very concerning. We want to do this types of testing or analysis that may yield issues, even though we don't see them right now. And those things can easily get turned down or pushed aside. So this is where the dishonesty is, is time to market is when you released a product, but you're implying that that's when the engineering team moves on to the new product, right? You're implying that that's when you stop spending on development. But so often that's not the case because the product is, has a lot of issues and some you know of and some you don't. And the team stays on the, you know, and they're continuing to fix things and you're quickly releasing updates, you know, and trying to get the next revision out there and even replacing stock or sending something to the customers and then sending them a new one even before something breaks because you know it's a defective item. And then of course, there's all the issues the customers are finding that you could have found in development. And I call that the recovery period. So then when the, re in the recovery period concludes, when the team really can move on, let's say 90% of your development team really can move on to the next product, the budget does really drop to just what you expected. And so I was like, it needs a name if we're going to talk about it. And that's time to reliability. So time to reliability is time to market plus the recovery period. And it's amazing when you start to really honestly measure what that time is of truly releasing the product, which means you've concluded the development program you start making smarter decisions. And then what you find is all of a sudden time to reliability becomes shorter. Then time to reliability becomes that time to market that you originally wanted. And then it actually, you start making products even quicker than the way you used to. So you all of a sudden start to be able to have product development programs that make better products with less investment and you release them quicker. And uh, that seems un, you know not believable that you can have it all, but you truly can. And it really starts with just honestly measuring, you know, when you are done developing a product. Have you come across companies that do this really well? It's something newer that I, I would say I first used the word time to reliability probably 10 months ago. And it was because I needed a name for it because I just over and over saw the inability to, to really make good decisions without true, you know, true, honest feedback. So there's companies that do better than others. Unfortunately, <clears throat> those companies usually have had to have been burned a bunch of times, right? To where they really have to be like, all right, let's be honest. You know, yeah, we pushed it out the door, but you remember that extra $5 million we spent an extra eight months? Like, 
This time when somebody comes forward and says, I found these issues, <clears throat> I found these issues, you know, you, you can bring that up as evidence of when there's the pushback of like, is it really that bad a thing? Be like, yeah, remember last time when we showed you this thing and you blew past it and then it cost us another 5 million bucks later and we could fix this right now in a week. So quite often the companies that do this better, unfortunately have the scars um, and that's where the lessons came from. And what I want to do is help companies be able to, to operate this way without having to experience all the scars and hardships. So what type of problems are they experiencing when they find you? So, you know, there's new product development and then helping with existing products. And so I would say kind of in practice, one of the things is so often when a new product is developed, you know, like the, the prototype is made, leadership wants to know how reliable is it? And they push hard to do a lot of testing to measure the reliability of the product. And this takes resource and time. Well, I can save you six months of testing and $300,000 right now and tell you it's crap. It's a prototype. Like, why are you, it's not going to be good. It's going to have tons of issues. So instead of creating that situation where for the teams, they're in this horrible, they're backed into a corner where one, they are measuring something that they know isn't good. So you pretty quickly, just by human nature, start dismissing things. Oh, that's a one-off. That won't happen again. Or you kind of start putting more nominal stresses on it or making excuses for observed things that could be issues. Um, and secondly, you're losing your resource and your time to be doing the testing that actually improves the design. Because the tests that improve a design are not the same tests that measure a design. So you're having the precious little bit of time you have in a resource being directed away from the tools that can actually make the product better that we know is not good. It's a prototype. And you're being forced, really almost forced to be a little bit dis to be dishonest, not in a nefarious way, but you're seeing issues and you're like, oh, we, you know, like we'll just, okay, we'll try to do our best to fix that later on. And it's so much more difficult to fix it later on. Or you're just changing the criteria just because really your job's on the line and the executives don't understand that they are forcing a situation that is tying the hands of the people who can make the design better and also making them measure it in a way that, it, again, is the beginning of the dishonest, you know, dishonest metrics that just hurt you later. And it's all done in sincere, you know, in sincerity of trying to do the best thing. But this is where the growth, this is why I want the executives to grow. This is why I'm switching my focus from the technical teams to adding, you know, because over and over again, I've seen how executives need to do things better. And, and that's where the next level of growth is. That's where the next generation of companies come in that dominate markets and destroy their competitors. Competitors cannot keep up if leadership is structuring programs in these ways where you are rapidly growing the robustness of a design very early in the program um, and you are steering and driving your program decisions based on real honest metrics that are really looking at the full picture, um, you're going to make the best decisions. It reminds me, as you're talking, it reminds me a lot about, I believe his name's Eric, the, the founder of Zoom, the video conferencing system. Right. I believe he was at GoToMeeting or WebEx, one of the big players before, and he was suggesting these new, you know, technology yeah. features to implement, new ways to go about doing this. And they said, no, 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 we've already made such a big investment, we're just going to ride it out. And then he he left, and then he started this, and look at what it is today. Everybody knows yeah. Zoom. Yeah. And so it's no surprise to me that you'll have these large organizations that are doing these somewhat backwards processes, or at least any highly inefficient ways of working, uh, deadlines and you know brushing stuff off because you have to hit the deadline. And then those people 
that are the practitioners there getting frustrated with that, leaving and either joining a startup that has better practices or starting their own company that has better practices and doing it the right way off the bat. Do you see that happening at all in the industry? Oh, yes. You're following. So there's there's more than one where I've been brought in to a company to help them. And they effectively, leadership doesn't listen, you know, and the technic- the technical people, the engineers, the directors, even the VPs like are like, oh my God, this is it. You know, this is the right thing. But executive leadership just won't let them do it. You know, it's like, no, like the little example I gave of like, no, I want you to measure the reliability of this. I want to start measurements. And they're like, it's not good. Like, let me, I found this issue. Let me fix it. I've, I don't want to do this other test that helps me know how to make it more robust. And they're like, no, no, no. <clears throat> So a lot of times, eventually, I might choose to disengage. I mean, I've fired customers and, you know, I'm kind of being funny, but I've been like, I've had people say, okay, you know, what do you, you know, we finish this phase of, you know, what do you propose next? And I've actually, in a written response said, I suggest we disengage at this point. And if you want to reach out to me at a later date, just because I want satisfaction. And then what'll happen is six months, a year later, some of these people who really understood what I was doing and wanted to happen have left gone to another company. And if it's a smaller, sometimes they take a higher position or maybe it is a startup. And the first, you know, early on they say, Hey, we need to call this guy, Adam. I worked with him before. This is what we need to do. And so they've moved themselves to an arena where they see the open-mindedness or they have the ability to direct, to do it. So in the end, it's a success for me because I, I got through to people and, and they saw it and got it. They just had to go somewhere else where they could participate in it. Oh, it's funny Bye. that you say that because on both of our product lines, sponsorship and making podcasts for other companies, there's it doesn't happen all the time, but there's at least been one instance on both of them where we were selling into somebody, they wanted to do it, but management wasn't on board. Then they ended up leaving and a couple months later reaching out to us and doing the deal with their new company uh, because they, they knew that's what they wanted to do and right. it made sense and the other team wasn't on board. So I think that that, that doesn't get talked a lot about in leadership and a lot of leadership, personal development, and we we talk about relationships, but and we talk about how relationships can be useful and valuable and profitable. But that actual aspect of people moving and changing companies and understanding your product or your brand, I don't hear that talked about a lot. Maybe I'm just in the wrong circles, though. You know, I think I think the thing is that when you look at when people leave companies, they're never leaving a company; they're leaving their immediate leadership. Almost always. Like I've rarely seen somebody leave a company and be like, you know, my boss and, and my boss's boss were amazing. We were totally on the same page. Like that doesn't happen. It's that, you know, there's just this difference in philosophy and things do change fast. You know, and even like you said with the Zoom thing where even, um, you know, he was in an industry that was brand new and booming, but you had you had people at the top who weren't you know, looking out at what else was out there and weren't looking within their organization to, you know, to be open-minded. But, you know, but on the other hand too, I mean, we can complement, you know, the idea of listening to your people, but that doesn't always work out too, right? I mean, there's also times where sometimes the leaders do really have, you know, I, I don't want to poo-poo the, the idea that leadership doesn't know what's going on. You could probably come up with just as many examples where the leaders stood their ground and were spot on um, too. Um, and a lot of people underneath left and they were wrong. You know, but but when there is something that is a a very consistently well supported area of growth and improvement, that's not the case, right? So, for example, if you go to when like you know I'm a big car guy, you know the Japanese invasion of the '70s, right? Toyota and Honda, Nissan showed up, 
And all of a sudden, we're showing how you can make an extremely reliable car that is, you know, high, good gas mileage and at a good cost point. And, you know, a lot of the American car companies were like, nobody wants that and it doesn't matter. And then sales took over, you know, they clearly began to dominate to where at one point Toyota became the number one automotive manufacturer in the world, you know, replacing GM. And um, so I've, the American or Western car companies that did realize that, you know, and follow that survived and the ones that didn't, didn't. So, you know, it's it's not that every idea is great, but sometimes it's very obvious that the tide is rising um, because of something new, something to the degree what I said, you know, you will, do- I think you'll dominate any market if leadership really begins to measure the results of activities associated to reliability and making decisions based on the correct metrics. I think you won't be able to compete. I think if within and within any industry, um, if there's somebody doing that, I don't. It's going to be very difficult to compete because you'll be spending more effort and getting less results. So the one takeaway is to focus on time to reliability, making your product reliable. Time to reliability is to honestly measure when you a program is truly completed. Completed. It's not when you put it on the shelves and then you're still developing. It's when, you know, you can set something like when 80% of our development resource comes off the program. When, you know, something like that is your time to reliability. It's the traditional time to market plus the recovery phase, which is really still continuing to develop. So be honest with yourself. Make honest metrics that really are what you are saying they are and imply they are. And you'll just make better decisions. What's your favorite book on the topic that you didn't write? On reliability as a whole. Well, here's the thing is that Good reliability in any good growth in an area, you look at the topics outside and you you bring them in. And I love um, and know him personally, Steven Spears, High Velocity Edge. And he wrote about how the reason why all the Western manufacturers, he studied Toyota uh, in great detail. He's, in, he's at MIT now. Uh, and um, he, in his PhD thesis, went and worked on the, the product development, on the actual production lines in Toyota, worked on the actual production lines in GM, like assembling seats and stuff like that. And went into that level of detail. And what he realized is that one of the reasons why the Western companies really never caught up was because they were replicating what, let's say, Toyota was doing, the steps they were doing. They never replicated the mindset that makes you grow. They never replicated the mindset where you were always looking to improve, where you are, they were just copying the steps. And I just thought that that was just a brilliant idea. And he called that the high velocity edge. And I I really enjoyed that. It's hard to get that at your company. We've got about 15 people now and it's taken me years to get the people that have the same mindset. Yeah. It's tough, man. Dude, this is exciting. We did it. Podcast number three. You're in the top <laughs> 1% now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a three-timer. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.